Part eleven of My School Days by E. Nesbitt. The Slipperfox recording is in the public domain. Part eleven. The happy memories of that golden time crowd thickly upon me. I see again the dewy freshness as of an enchanted world that greeted us when we stole down, carrying our shoes in our hands long before the rest of the household was astir. I smell the scents of dead leaves and wood smoke, and it brings back to me the bonfires on autumn evenings when we used to play at Red Indians and sit round the fire telling stories. And when that palled, dig out from the grey and red ashes the potatoes we had put there to roast, and eat the half-cooked, blackened, smoke-flavoured dainties with keenest appreciation. The rare days when we went to Dinard and paddled in the shallow waters of the bay between blue sky and gold sand, picking limpets from the rocks and wishing for wooden spades, which Dinard then at least did not produce. A part of the infinite charm of those days lies in the fact that we were never bored, and children are bored much more often and much more deeply than their elders suppose. I remember an occasion when some well-meaning friends persuaded my mother that my education was being neglected. I was sent to a select French school, Mademoiselle Fauchet's in Divan, but owing to some misunderstanding I arrived five days before the other girls. Mademoiselle Fauchet kindly consented to overlook the mistake and keep me till the other girls arrived. I had a paint-box which pleased me for the first day the boredom of the other four days is branded on my memory in grey letters. Mademoiselle Fauchet was busy in visiting her friends and receiving them. She took me out for a serious walk every day. We walked for an hour, and then Mademoiselle Fauchet returned to her visiting, and I to the bare schoolroom. I had bought few books with me, and these I devoured in an hour or two. There were no books in the schoolroom but lesson-books, thumbed, dogs-eared, and ink-stained. There was no one to talk to save the severe cook, who was kind to me in her way, but didn't understand children. There was a grey-walled garden full of fruit that I must not touch, and a locked bookcase in Mademoiselle Fauchet's salon full of books that I must not read. I was not conscious of being unhappy, only bored, bored to extinction. On the fourth day I persuaded Mademoiselle Fauchet to vary our prim walk round the town. She asked me where I would like to go, and I said La Fontaine. Mademoiselle Fauchet meant to be kind according to her lights, but she was the ideal schoolmistress, grey-haired, prim, bloodless. However, she conceded this to me, and I was grateful. We started for La Fontaine. La Fontaine is one of the show-places of Divan, as it has a natural fountain of mineral water. There is a casino where balls and fates and merry-makings are held, where bands play and little coloured lamps glimmer in the trees. All this awakened no associations, stirred nothing in me, for I had never been to a fete at La Fontaine. But below the platform on which the casino was built ran a stream, our stream our Nile, on its way to join the river. The sight of it was too much for me. I remembered our happy exploring parties, the muddy dams we had built across it. 
I thought of the rabbits, and the garden at home, and my brothers, and my mother, and in the midst of one of Mademoiselle's platitudes on the beauty of the scene, I began to run. Mademoiselle Fauchet called after me. She even ran a little, I believe, but the legs of fifty are not a match for the legs of ten. I ran faster and faster down the avenue of chestnuts. I reached our meadow where our stream ran just the same as in the days when I was free to make a paradise of it. I ran on and on, up the slope, over the cornfield, across the road, through our own meadow, and never stopped till I flung myself into my sister's arms. Then, and not till then, the fact dawned upon me that I had run away from school. I don't recall the explanations that must have followed on my return. I know that I cried a great deal, and felt that I had committed an awful crime. I couldn't explain my feelings to myself, but I knew that in the same circumstances I should have done the same again, though I wept heartfelt tears of penitence for having done it at all. I think my mother must have understood something of what I went through, for she did not send me back. Another period of acute boredom came to me some years later, when I went to stay with some friends of my mother's in the north of London. They lived in a dreary square apart from the main thoroughfare, so that if you looked out over the brown wire blinds you never saw anything pass but butchers' and bakers' carts. If I went for a walk the sordid ugliness of Islington outraged the feelings of a child who had always found her greatest pleasures and life's greatest beauties in the green country. The people with whom I was staying were the kindest-hearted people in the world. They would have done anything to please me if they had only known what I wanted. But they didn't know. That was just it. The dining-room was mahogany and leather, with two books in it, the Bible and family prayers. They stood on the sideboard, flanked on one side by a terracotta water-bottle, oozing sad tears all day into a terracotta saucer, and on the other by a tea-caddy. Upstairs, in the drawing-room, which was only used on Sundays, were a few illustrated gift-books, albums, and types of beauty, arranged on a polished oval walnut centre-table. The piano was kept locked. There were a few old bound volumes of good words, which I had read again and again. The master of the house, a doctor, was, my mother tells me, a man of brains, but I only saw him at meals, and then he seldom spoke. The lady of the house had a heart full of kindness, and a mind full of court circular. She talked of nothing else. Her daughters were kind to me in their way, and the games I had with them were my only relaxation. The doctor talked very occasionally of his patients, and this interested me. One night I went into the surgery, and found the bottles of medicine which his assistant had made up, standing in a row waiting for their white paper wrappers. I didn't in the least realise what I was doing, when I thought to escape from my boredom by mixing the contents of these bottles in a large jug, and then impartially filling up the bottles again with the mixture. When I had filled and corked them all I slipped away. It was done in pure mischief, with no thought of consequences. But when I woke that night in bed, and suddenly remembered that I had heard that medicines that were given for some complaints were bad for others, and absolutely harmful, my heart stood still. 
Suppose some poor sick person died, whom doctor would have cured, because I had mixed his medicine with something else. I fully resolved to own up the next morning. But the next morning I reflected that perhaps some of the people that had taken my mixture might die of it, and then I should be hanged for murder. It seemed to me wiser to wait and see what happened. If anyone did die, and doctor were accused of poisoning his patients, I would come forward in the court of justice, as people did in the books, and own that I, and I alone, had been to blame, making my confession among the sympathetic tears of usher and jury, the judge himself not remaining dry-eyed. This scene so much appealed to me that I almost forgot that, before it could be enacted, somebody would have to die of my mixture. When I remembered this, I wept in secret. When I thought of the scene in which I should nobly own my guilt, I secretly exulted. I was not bored now. Whatever else might be the effect of my mixtures, they had certainly cured my boredom. Day after day passed by in spasms of alternate remorse and daydreaming. Every day I expected, Doctor, to announce at dinner that some of his patients had breathed their last in inexplicable circumstances. But he never said anything of the kind, and when a week had passed, I was convinced that so good a doctor never gave anybody any medicine that could do them any harm in any condition, and that one of his medicines was as good for any complaint as any other's. Whether this was so, or whether someone had been a witness of my act in the surgery and had remade the mixtures, I shall never know. But in the reaction following my anxiety, boredom settled down upon me more heavily than ever. I wrote a frantic letter to my mother, begging her to take me away, for I was so miserable I wished I was dead. Not having any stamps, I gave this letter to Mrs. to post. I don't suppose she thought she was doing any harm when she opened and read it, and I hope she was gratified by its contents. She added a note to my mother, begging her to accede to my request, and to take me away at once. It was years before I forgave her for reading that letter, and, to this day, I am afraid she has never forgiven me for writing it. My mother was at Penshurst at the time. I was sent down to her in deep disgrace, and my mother received me with gentle reproaches that cut me to the heart. My sister was exceedingly angry with me, perhaps with some cause, and pointed out to me how ungrateful it was to repay Mrs. by writing such a letter. I defended myself stoutly. I wrote it for Mamma and not for her. And though I was sorry for having hurt the feelings of one I knew had tried to be kind to me, yet I fear the verdict of my unregenerate heart was, serve her right. I felt that I was being unjustly blamed, and though I was sorry I would not say so, and the next morning I wandered up through Penshurst churchyard, and through a little wicket-gate into the park, where the splendour of a blaze of buttercups burst upon me. The may-trees were silver-white, the skylarks singing overhead. I sat down under a white may-tree. The spirit of spring breathed softly round me, and when I got up to go back, I was in love and charity with all men and all women, except Mrs. I am sorry if I have been naughty, I said to my sister. I didn't mean to be, but— That will do, she said, skilfully stopping my confidences. Now I do hope you are going to try and be a good girl, 
and to not make dear mamma unhappy. I will be good, I said. Oh, I will indeed. And as long as I stayed among the golden buttercups and silver maybushes, I believe I was moderately good. End of part eleven.